I'm sure you've all been in a place at some point in your lives where you felt like what you'd been asked to do was the impossible, where you were um, up against all odds and you didn't think that you could come through the other side alive, much less victorious. Um, just think of whenever that time was, and maybe some of you are unfortunate to have had hundreds of those times in your life. Just think of one of those times in your life. And, and, and then let me go to this and to say that the first Sunday after Easter, we started looking at the theme of, of resurrection leading to mission. If you remember right, that was many weeks ago. We looked at the theme of resurrection always leading to mission, not to just some big party and hoopla, but to actually Jesus commissioning and calling his followers to go out and to do a mission. Now, let's just be clear for a second. The mission that Jesus gave to his people wasn't like a grocery list to go and tick off list by list by list. It wasn't something as menial as taking out the trash or um, just kind of cleaning up your room or something to that effect. Um, he didn't just say, I want you to become a successful institution, O oh followers of mine. Uh, I want you to become a place where you have warm and heartfelt spiritual experiences. That's not what he said to his followers. He also didn't say, I want you to become a social network, uh, a club of sorts, a place where you can know and be known and enjoy, but kind of keep the dark, nasty things of the world out and uh, make it a place of comfort on the inside. He didn't give that as the task for the church. But in Acts 1.8, we read clearly what he gave the task or the call uh, to the, what, what the task was for his people and the call upon his people. He says, you are to be my witnesses. You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was the, this was the mission that the resurrection of Jesus led to. In other words, because I rose from the dead and have been declared by God to be the world's true Lord and the only hope over and against all other hopes that you might have in your life, because this is real and this is true, I'm sending you now just like Jesus sent me, John 20, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. I'm sending you now to go tell the world and reveal to the world that this really is the case. That I am the true Lord. And that there is no life apart from me. Or as the Isaiah reading said, there is no God besides me. That reading out of Isaiah 44 is surrounded by stuff that talks about the futility of idolatry that human beings are so prone to cutting down a tree and cutting down some logs and putting it on the fire and roasting our dinner over it and taking the other half of the log and carving something out of it and bowing down to it as our God. So the call upon the church is to be witnesses to the, to the universal lordship and reigning and rule of Jesus. Now, what that means is that the church becomes this vehicle, if you will, of light and of life in a world of darkness and of death. We become the place where God is shining to the world around us. So let me just ask you, going back to that question, have you ever been in a place where you feel like you're kind of at the end of your rope? Where you think that the task that's been given to you is far too great than what you have in terms of resources available to you at the moment. I mean, let's be honest, we, we know ourselves, don't we? We talk about mission a lot here at Church of the Cross. We talk about this call, and, 
The call is nothing short of actually representing God to the world. This isn't representing your, your brother or sister or your mom or dad or your boss. Or, this is representing God to the world. We know how we struggle with joy. We've been talking about joy and hope and peace. We know how elusive those things are in our own lives. We know how fickle we can be. We know how forgetful we can be about the primary identity that we have in God over and against our identity in our job or our, our studies or whatever it might be. We know ourselves too well, I think, to say that we shouldn't wrestle with this call. And I want to suggest that if, if you haven't actually ever really wrestled with this weightiness of the call as a follower of Jesus to bear his image to the world, to be a part of his missionary people, then either you haven't understood the mission clearly, or you grossly overestimate your own ability and, and, and gifts, uh, that, that you're some kind of gift to the world around you. It's either one of those two things. If you haven't really wrestled with this and felt the burden of this at some level. I mean, think of the apostles for just a moment. These are the ones that, that Jesus is actually speaking to back in the day, saying, you're going to be my witnesses. Well, what, what about the apostles? Cowards. Failures. Unfaithful. Um, grabbing for first position. Give me the position at your right or at your left in your kingdom, Lord Jesus. These fickle men, fishermen, ordinary and uneducated, Acts 4 says, are just told by Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, that you're going to be my witnesses. So, so we are in good company if we think that we've encountered the impossible at some level when we think about the mission that God has called us to. And we probably rightly should say, God, are you sure you, don't have, are you, sure you haven't made a mistake? Are you sure you're really wanting to do this through people like me? Are you sure? Because I don't think I have what it takes. And in a sense, Jesus affirms that initial response in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, where he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. To wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus is basically saying, yeah, you're right. You, you, you can't do this. You can't live up to this call that's upon your life. You, Church of the Cross, this family in Boston, you can't. Who are you to think that you could actually bear witness to the God of the universe in the city of Boston? Wait. That's the first call that Jesus gives. Wait. Don't go out and try this on your own. Don't go out and embrace this mission on your own. Don't go out and try to live this life in any way in obedience to me on your own because you will be a miserable failure if you do. And many of us try and try and try. So this is the context in which Pentecost takes place. It's the context of a call, a call that's far too great for any human being to ever live up to. And it's a call to mission. So we get Jesus saying in verse 5, Acts 1, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Or again in verse 8 of chapter 1, And you will be my witnesses. Or he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and on and on and on. So he says, 
He wants us to receive power. Receive power. The Holy Spirit is God's gift, God's lavish generosity upon a stumbling and bumbling people to enable them to walk into the fullness of what God is calling his people to be. Augustine once said, command what you will and give what you command. And that is in essence what's happening in the early chapters of Acts. The Holy Spirit is divine empowerment. That's the best shorthand I know of to describe the Holy Spirit. Divine empowerment. God is saying, I will give you what you need to walk into the fullness of what I'm calling you to be as my people. Let me give you um, just a picture for a moment. Um, I have a friend from Noah's Ark here from way back in the days. My, my working in the backcountry. We used to do second year mountaineering training. We used to blindfold the second year guides and throw them in a school bus and then drive them for about 45 minutes into the middle of the wilderness. And then drop them off in groups of about four, about a mile or so from each other. So they were kind of stranded all on their own. And when they got to this spot, then we'd say, we'd take off the blindfold and say, now you have to figure out where you are and you have to get to this point um, in this wilderness area. And then, and importantly then, we would hand them a map and a compass. And of course, this was training for them to learn how to use the map and the compass. But we'd hand them the map and the compass. And the map and the compass were essential components to being able to do what they were being asked to do. Without the map and the compass, there was no, there was no getting to the end. There was no uh, achieving the objective, if you will. And so that, in a sense, is kind of a crass, uh, and any analogy about God, God the Holy Spirit would be crass, but it's kind of a crass um, illustration of what the Holy Spirit is to the church. It is that map and that compass that God has given to us to go out and to live the life that God is calling us to live as his witnesses in the world around us. So in other words, for just a second, the Holy Spirit is not for a spiritual version of Disneyland, where you... um, ride these cool rides and have these interesting experiences and buy these interesting foods, um, all to your great delight. The Holy Spirit is not for that. The Holy Spirit is not for some kind of personal ecstatic experience, or at least not exclusively for that. He's not given for just personal fulfillment, though certainly the Holy Spirit does bring life and truth and substance in a way that nothing else in the world can ever bring. There's so much confusion around what the whole, who the Holy Spirit is in the church today. So much, in fact, um, and, and much of this has probably come as a result of the, the Pentecostal movement in the last hundred years, which has brought great and wonderful things to the church. And don't hear me saying that it hasn't. But it's also brought in many ways a confusion and a distortion of the pure and simple purposes for which the Holy Spirit was given to the church. And that confusion and distortion has led to a lack and a neglect of this all-important truth for the church today about the Holy Spirit being given for our empowerment to mission, our empowerment to mission. In many ways, it's like taking the, the compass, which often has a little magnifying glass, and instead of using it to get to the destination, you start burning up little ants. You know, if you've ever tried to do that, that was kind of a favorite of, uh, of guides in training at Noah's Ark. But... Um, It's like taking the tool that was given and starting to kind of focus on something else instead of using it for the purposes for which he was given, the Holy Spirit was given for this. So the Holy Spirit was given that we might be empowered to do mission and not mission that's 
that's self-aggrandizing, self-promoting, that's, that's self-determined, but mission that is fundamentally receptive. The first posture of any believer in Christ is receptivity. Chapter 1, verse 8, Acts, and you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Our mission is a mission that's first and foremost defined by receiving. And the call to mission can never be separated from the gifts and the grace and the abundance of a God who's pouring out life on his people again and again and again. We didn't earn the incarnation. We didn't earn the crucifixion. We didn't uh, manipulate and force God to the resurrection. And just in the same way, we did not earn Pentecost. But the Holy Spirit was poured out by God's grace lavishly upon the church to empower us for mission, to empower us to a new way of living life. And this mission is defined not by self-will, but by things like justice and compassion and non-violent, non-retaliation, not taking revenge, generosity, courage, and boldness. These things that define the very mission of Jesus himself now begin to define the mission of the people of God. So receptivity is the key, and we receive power. There's a great verse in 1 Corinthians 4, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The Holy Spirit brings power. The church is a place of power. And this power of the Holy Spirit is working in the human heart to bring about life, to bring about the, the joy and the hope and the peace that we've been talking about for the last six weeks. There is no joy, there is no hope, there is no peace apart from the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives actually producing these things to bring about an awareness of the love of God for us. It's so hard, isn't it? You know yourself so well. I know, my, I know my mistakes. I know my faults. It's so hard to believe that we're so loved by the God who made the world. It's so hard to believe that. And it's by the Spirit of God that that love is sealed upon the human heart. So this power is a power, first of all, that's working new life in you and in me bringing about a newness to our lives. That's the internal side of the power. The power is also working out in the world, bringing about situations where we're enabled to bear witness through our weakness to the grace and the glory and the wonder of a God who rescues people like us. And the Spirit is at work in people throughout this world and throughout this city and at work in us and bringing those moments together that we might indeed bear witness to the Lordship and the reign and the rule of Jesus. That we might bring a, a drink of cold water to people who are dying of thirst. So the Spirit's at work in us in power. The Spirit's at work out in the world in power. And this power is defined first and foremost by humility. You know these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This power that's at work in the church today. This power of God at work in us. So let me ask you this question. Um, well, let, let, let me say one thing before I ask you that question. What this means, to go back to the, to, the, to the issue of, have you ever felt like you've been given a task that's far too great? And what I'm saying to you is, if you claim to follow Jesus, you've been given a task that's far too great and far too wonderful for you. 
What that means is that God doesn't care so much about your resources. Everybody in the world does. Everybody everybody in the world wants to know what you've got. What can you bring to the table? What do you have that's worth something to me? God's not so much concerned with your resources. God is not so much concerned with your credentials. Now again, everybody in the world is concerned with your credentials. They want to know where you studied, what you studied, what your marks were, when you got your last promotion. God isn't that concerned with your your credentials. It also means that God isn't that concerned with your networks, with those sort of circles of friends and of power and of influence that you've been given. God's not so concerned about those things, but the world really is. You see how the kingdom is often just cutting against the grain of the world that we live in? The fact of Pentecost says that God has given all of us as his followers by his lavish and generous grace everything that we need to be faithful, obedient followers to him. Listen to these words from Peter in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You may become partakers of the divine nature. God's life at work in you. God's very life and power at work in you. Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. He's given you this divine power. So does it really work? That's the question that I want to leave us with. Does it really work? Let's answer the question for back then, for just a second. These, I don't know, 120 people had this tremendous experience in Acts 2 of the Spirit coming, sound of rushing wind, flames, tongues of flaming fire. gets a little confusing in there. We know it's just this extraordinary experience of the Spirit of God filling and birthing His church in Acts 2. Then Peter, the denier, the faithless one, stands up and begins to proclaim a message of folly about the cross of Jesus. A message that makes no sense, a message that's not really going to win a lot of hearers apart from some divine intervention. And 3,000 people were brought to their knees, were cut to the heart, to repentance and to faith. And the rest of the book of Acts tells story after story after story of the reality of the power of God at work in the church and through the church to the world. And that mission, that story is continuing on today in the church today. So it worked back then. Does it work today? That's the question. Does it work today? It's a new day. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Let me just say simply that God and his gifts have not changed. If you're here today and you're kind of you're struggling with life, you're struggling to experience the, the, these, these fruits of the Spirit, the joy, the hope, the peace, these things that we've been talking about. All I can say to you is that these things are true. 
that the Holy Spirit is real and that he lives inside of each one of you. And yet, at the same time, that the Holy Spirit is a respecter of persons, if you will. We get these two lines, one in, one in uh, Ephesians 4 and one in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, do not grieve the Holy Spirit and do not quench the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit isn't in us forcing and manipulating his way to prominence in our hearts. Go back to receptivity. Go back to an emptying of self. Go back to a yielding, which is the only posture of a believer in Jesus. And so perhaps the question to ask is, as we, as we come to a close, is this question of, Lord, show me in my life, where might I be grieving your spirit? Where am I so wedded to the world around me that I'm crowding out this, this abundant power of life that you long to fill me with? Remember Jesus, ask and you will receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For if your earthly father knows how to give you good gifts, how much more does your heavenly father want to pour out his Holy Spirit upon you? So that's one point of application. Just ask God, God, where, where is it in my life that I've quenched or grieved your presence at work in me? Where am I wedded to things that are crowding you out of my life? But then say most of all, and the way I want to leave you this evening is to say, God, I rejoice and I thank you for the abundance of your grace which has been poured out upon me by the giving of your spirit in me. I want you to walk away from this night proclaiming what God has done. The Christian life is one degree of celebration to another in the glorious generosity of a God who gives and who pours out. He gave the spirit to his disciples so that they could do things that they could never have done. They started speaking languages that they had never studied and people heard them. And perhaps you and I might be able to not take revenge on the person who's so vindictive against us. Perhaps you and I might be able to love our enemies instead of curse them. Perhaps you and I might be able to lay down our lives for our spouse or for our children in a way that exalts and lifts them up and gives them life. Perhaps we might be able to care for the needs of the poor around us, to be about justice and compassion and liberation in ways that no selfish human being could naturally ever do. But by the grace of God poured out from on high, on his church. And that has happened in the day of Pentecost. And that is our reality. And that is why, and the only reason why, that at Church of the Cross we can talk about mission, we can long for mission, and we can participate in mission because of this power poured out, divine empowerment poured out on you and on me. And maybe one last thing, you don't see it. Maybe we just need to pray for God to give us the eyes to see. Because the Spirit's often working in ways that we can barely notice. But He is at work in our community. He is at work in the church in Boston. And we can celebrate that work. Amen.